Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Bitfix.com broadcast. My name's Stuart Wright and welcome producer Helen Simmons. Hello. Nice to be here. Indeed, indeed. Now, I spoke to, uh, I covered Say Your Prayers on the podcast, what, three years ago now? Yeah. And I'm guessing you're still, I mean, just to give you some context, I'm guessing you're still buzzing off uh, a world premiere at Venice for Horde. Yes, that was fun. Well, we've got you on to uh, talk about three films that have impacted everything in life, but we've also got you on to talk about some research you you undertook, looking at the connection between short film, festival success, and how it does or doesn't impact on any longer-term success in terms of directing longer-form films. Um, so mm. I, I guess where we should start is where do, where does that start for you what what instigated it what did you what did you take on as what do you what did you do as far as research to to look into this well i suppose over the years i've gradually been assembling in my head uh, you know tens hundreds of stories of people i've met and and figuring out okay this is where they've got to this is where they are watching their careers grow and knowing where they've started hmm. um and there was, I can't remember what triggered it a few months ago, but there were some conversations online around the connections between, or there was a lot of talk around short films. And I wondered whether there had ever been a study um, by, who's the guy, the brilliant film research guy. Stephen Follows. Stephen Follows. I wondered if he'd ever done anything. And um, there wasn't anything kind of clearly mapping it out. And I think the more that I've researched uh, since, that's probably because it is slightly chaotic and unpredictable. Mm. So what I've tried to do is look into, you know, the markers of um, awards, I guess. So the Biffa, BAFTA nominated shorts over the past 10, 15 years. Yeah. Talk to people that know the short film world well. So, you know, the sales agents and distributors of shorts, uh, programmers that I know and, and filmmakers that I know and also looking at the films that have come through the public funding model um, and then the more commercial models and at, you know out of the UK in the last 15 years hmm. and which features then have been nominated at those festivals and what was the kind of background of those directors predominantly as well looking at directors more than producers and writers okay so from that research then what what would you say is the good news you've found out <laughs> i think the good news and the thing to be heartened by is that there's so many stories of successful feature 
you know, and, and TV, which I didn't dig into so much, but obviously lots of people end up going into TV. Yeah. Um, directors where they haven't, they absolutely have not had that Sundance winning short or the Cannes short or the BAFTA winning short. There's, there's a lot of directors who have made fantastic careers um, and they haven't done that. And they, and that is not a prerequisite. And I think something that people feel is like they're making a short and, and feeling that the pressure is on to then hit these targets that will mean that they can then go on and make feature films. Mm. Um, and actually that's not, it's not necessary in so many cases. Um, for you know, 10, obviously the, the model is, always changing and the funders are always changing and the people that are making those decisions are changing, but yeah. that's not the case uh, a long time ago. And now in terms of, you know, debut features I know are shooting right this minute. Um, a lot of those filmmakers have not gone to those places with those shorts. So does that mean they've not made shorts or does that mean they've just, they've made shorts as part of their learning, but not had to get them nominated or shown at the big festivals? There seems to be that some of the trends that I've seen, like having a a big body of work, so maybe putting lots of shorts online, making lots of smaller shorts or performance pieces or whatever it might be that show your work, but maybe they don't go to those major festivals. That can be a route. Or similarly in the music video or commercial space, directors who have been really prolific there and they have so they have a body of work that is slightly different um, and then they're transitioning to the feature. So then they have made work, but, you know, not, they've not been at those A-list festivals. Um, or other debut filmmakers. I mean, even uh, Luna, who, you know, we just did Horde with, the Venice film, she's done two short films um, and that's it. And, you know, they went to LFF and a couple of other places, but they didn't do, I think probably also because of, you know, the the money behind the film and how many festivals you can pay to submit to and all those things, um, especially in the first, first short, which was super low budget. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't go to tens, hundreds of festivals, um, a major festival, but it was so clear from her work that, she's got an incredible distinctive style and that she is a voice that people want to hear. And obviously then her features gone, gone to Venice and had an amazing reception. So I think there obviously has to be work in place before you get that feature to, to demonstrate that you've got a voice that people are excited by, but it isn't necessarily for some, for quite a lot of filmmakers, it's not necessarily that very traditional short route. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've had, I spoke to John McLean on the podcast when Slow West came out, and certainly he was noticed for want of a better expression because of his music videos and his film experimentation, and it was because it was available online, you know. And I think it's Fastbend. I think he talks about Fastbender's management company founding, you know, and said, and that that led to a conversation, which then led to making a short with Fastbender, which then led to. You know, slow west. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't as simple as those steps, but those are those are the basic steps between the um, the the bit before you make a feature film and the bit when you've got to make one. You know, 
Um, and I was thinking, mm. and the guys who did who were behind Lights Out was, I think they speak to that model you're talking about. They they had like a volume of just little two minute sort of silly horror jump things. But obviously, once you've got body and the up, guys, um, yeah, the guys who did talk to me were similar. They built up a big following on YouTube and with their horror videos, and yeah, there's there's lots of different. Um, Lots of different ways in that are actually, and I think that financiers are becoming more excited by in a way that maybe they were before, and then there was a period where they weren't, and now it's coming back. With with, all, with those with those kind of positive examples where the need for um, feature, uh, uh, premiere festival success with a short film to therefore get a um, feature film success is that did you see any difference between say where short films are funded by? The public bodies say, because I'm, I imagine, you know, I could imagine from the outside looking in, it would appear easier to get at LFF if you've got VFI funding or Film 4 funding or, or BBC funding for your short than if you haven't, because you're already kind of in a circle that's, and I don't mean that you're chosen or anything, but you're obviously, those those three bodies, you know, they any two of those three, I mean, two, VFI plus BBC, VFI plus Film 4 is, is an often combination, isn't it, for a feature film? Made with made with soft money in this country. So, was there any connection there, or any need, any greater need there? There's definitely a connection between. I mean, even this year alone, you if you look at the Biffa short long list, a quarter of those are funded by BBC Film, which is kind of crazy. Um, so I think there's obviously a connection when it comes to awards and possibly festivals where, and you know, like lots of. In, in the awards space, I think it's we do a lot of work on having to do unconscious bias training. But I think there's always that bias where you see a label, uh, like a brand of one of those companies attached to a short. And when you've got hundreds of shorts and like, how do you make one of them stand out? Um, I, I do think it's quite clear that that makes a difference when it comes to recognition. Once the short's been made, if it's been backed by those people, um, I think. BFI Network gives funding to a lot more shorts. So maybe the impact slightly lessened there, but Film 4 and BBC obviously don't fund that many. And I think most, but then equally there are examples. I think this is this is the main takeaway. There's always exceptions to all the rules. Um, there are examples of shorts that have been funded by them and they haven't gone anywhere. They haven't gone to any major festivals and you know they haven't made that much noise at all. But um it definitely feels like in the Biffa BAFTA space for shorts, there's a sort of preference towards shorts that are funded by public funders. And I guess that feeds the loop of, well, the short's done well. And so the they want to back the feature. But I would say as a rule and, and in terms of how development works, most of those funders wouldn't fund a short without already having the intention to do the feature. So it's kind of a skewed, it, it's almost like working backwards from them they want to develop the features they've done the short as opposed to the other way around do you see what i mean yeah 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 well it's, it's kind of back it's kind of that they're they're interested in the longer term to start with right in some instances rather than just simply here's a one-off interaction where you need somebody to make a film it's like there's a there's a macro decision being made as well as a micro one isn't there in terms of yeah. and that and that can be skewed can it because there can be people who just get because they've got an interesting short idea, and they, 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 but I suppose as a body, they have to be seen as being a catalyst for careers as well as a catalyst for industry. 
And, you know, their funding remits are different because BFI Network, it's very much we have this allocated pot of money in different regions and we're going to give it to X number of films. And that's that's the remit. There is nothing further than that. It's just to get these filmmakers the money to make their films. Whereas for BBC and Film 4, it's this they're not going to see a return on that money. So it's it's always with the intention of it being a test run or a further development of directing skills in order to make the feature that's probably already in development. So I think it would be, it's maybe, maybe before there are occasions, but it's quite rare that they would ever commit to funding a short without having a very strong or already established intention to do a feature, which I think people don't realise until they get into having those conversations. And it's quite clear that they wouldn't just fund a short for the sake of it. It's it, there's always got to be a, a longer term relationship and plan in place, and in a way that that mirrors how most relationships work in film anyway, don't they? In a way, it's like we don't just go out to the shop and get ourselves a filmmaker, mm-hmm. do we? We 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 end up having to build a relationship that that can't just start with our project. It has to be a, a relationship you want to understand whether you're going to do it, do something with them. Um, before we get on to the negatives, I'd like to ask you what was you 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 would have entered into this research with a perception. So, what was your biggest surprise that went against your perceptions as to what you thought you might find out when you started to pay closer attention? Biggest surprise, I suppose, and I heard this from someone quite early on when I did a tweet about it. That interestingly, often the the shorts that have screened at the most festivals you know, like quantity of festivals and uh, also sometimes have, you know, got to BAFTA Oscar level. There's often a really, really long gap or or actually never a feature for that director. Um, there's not an instant, you might assume, oh, well, if you've won the best short BAFTA, you're going to get your feature going within 18 months. And that's actually quite rare there's often really long gaps and I don't know why that is because I haven't spoken to those filmmakers or, but it, it's, it, it perhaps has suggested that sometimes there's a disconnect between what the feature space wants and what does well on a short circuit. And I could get into that a bit more in terms of what I've seen with the genre as well. So, well, oh, please do. Well, as you know, there's a certain, I think comedy is a really interesting space and I talk a lot to directors who want to make um, more commercial comedy, rom-com or whatever fair. And it's quite hard to get those films away in this country. And there definitely seems to be quite a big disconnect between festivals and things there. And then what you're allowed to do or what you can get away in the feature space. So I think most festivals will always have quite a strong crop of comedy shorts. And, you know, there's directors who can really build a profile from doing those films. Um, but I think then it becomes much harder to translate that to features because there's less space to develop those films as a director. Um, because that space in terms of most of the development funding available is more interested in the authored personal stuff, uh, which comedy obviously can be. But more often than not, it's just focused on entertaining. And so I think, in a way, uh, 
it's obviously great to have your work recognized, but I think it's it's proven more effective for, for directors that make those kinds of shorts to get into TV off the back of them than film. And there's so many brilliant like directors that you could think of that we all know well who have done great genre shorts, you know, like an Alice Seabright or um Kate Heron, or you know, there's there's lots of people whose work we will now know, but that's mainly because they've gone from having really successful shorts to the TV space and then carved a name for themselves in TV. And I'm sure they will come back to film. But it has been interesting to see time and time again successful shorts that are comedy or genre. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, uh, what's he called? Um, Jamie Childs, who's got like a, a huge, uh, you know, evidence of body of TV, high-end TV work. And only last year did he did he finally do his first ever feature film. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of, but I'm, but I'm guessing before the TV, there would have been the shorts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I imagine so. But I suppose if comedy is one genre, then I'm guessing, I mean, horror, which is something I'm a bit more familiar with in terms of the kind of cause and effect. Now, you're, you're less likely to see maybe a, a, a balls-to-the-wall horror short at an A-list festival, but certainly you're you kind of B-list, you're fantastic fest, you're... Your fright fest, your sitches, a reputation there with a short film as a director. While it won't be like you like you described before, it won't lead to overnight success. But there is evidence. I mean, my favourite one recently, where like Paul McAvoy was talking about when he got the sh- the first short film from Lee Cronin, who did Evil Dead Rise this year. You know, that was a he could. I mean, while you couldn't say that choosing that short led to that feature, but certainly it's part of the journey, isn't it? Yes. And I think actually, you know, horror is such a sort of um, specific space. And uh, again, I think interesting here because we don't make that many straight horror films. Um, It's more a lot of directors. I mean, you know, Rob Savage, obviously Host was done here, but has now gone to make a lot of horror in the US. And I think that's kind of a common trend because it's we if we make horror here we tend to make horror that is sort of also drama um and so there, there's that interesting like hybrid and i think shorts that are a combination a sort of there's definitely lots of examples of filmmakers where you know like a rose glass or someone where the feature the first feature was horror but the shorts haven't been out and out horror um the the kind of more Nuanced horror space, I suppose, is can have crossover. And then there's also the whole, I mean, the, the good thing about horror as a genre is there's so many dedicated festivals. Um, but it's it's the path from there to making the debut in the UK in particular is harder. And the, the route that seems to be tried and tested, but is more international, is is building this kind of cult following, I suppose, online or making a, a cult horror short online. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know one director who did a Vimeo one where he ended up being selected as the Vimeo film of the month, and that led to him getting management in the US as a you know as a straight. So he didn't lead to the feature, but certainly it was one of the big building blocks that led to his feature. You know, so it was like there is, and that makes it sound like that can happen to everybody, but it's just the fact that it can happen, which is just the same as you can direct a feature that can happen, but there's no. I guess listening to what you're saying, I guess there is <laughs> what you found is 
there is no A to B to C in a way. (laughs) (laughs) There just is evidence that there are films that go to big festivals and they become feature film directors as much as there are. But there's also, yeah, there's also a lot of uh, shorts that go to the big festivals and then the feature doesn't get made or the feature isn't successful. Obviously, there's a lot of, um, you know, you can trace back a sort of a Lynn Ramsey or a Martin McDonough or whatever to their Oscar winning shorts years, years ago. But actually they were really, really rare. Um, if you look back over the years at the shorts that there's normally in every every year, there's probably one name that you'd recognise. So you're talking of the like thousands of shorts that were condensed into whatever are picked for awards each year. Um, it's actually quite a small percentage. It's normally like a one out of five that would st- you'd still know about. Them. I feel like I'm asking your advice here, but like just thinking of your your view as a producer as well as someone that's done this research. Then, so is there as much of a risk for someone trying to progress their career as a director in just making a, a feature film that might just get them to learn what they can do as as that could lead to as much success as trying to do a short? You know, there's there's not there's no rhyme or reason why one would be more beneficial than the other apart from maybe time and cost yeah i mean the cost because there was well i started out making a micro budget feature at a time when that was quite you know that was the time when there was black pond and you know we that was kind of people doing what down terrace had done and you know you had schemes like microwave where you make features for 100 grand which i think now feels quite unthinkable although you know all my friends hate me was a feature that was made for not, I mean, it was more than that, I think, but it was, you know, micro budget. Um, and that did incredibly well. I went to Tribeca in London and it's, you know, almost definitely is going to have made a career for those filmmakers. Uh, so I think, you know, looking back, I'm really glad that we made a feature for what some people would make a short for because it definitely gave so many of us HODs included like a career afterwards. And actually the, the, if you just knew, you know, statistically there's many, many more shorts that are submitted to festivals every year compared to features. So yeah, I guess statistically you have a greater chance of breaking through because there just aren't as many features, but, um, and, and if you look at a lot of big directors, people will often talk about their first I think there was a conversation about this with Greta Gerwig recently in Barbie. It was like everyone just just talks about the films that everyone knows, but there's also one before that no one talks about. And we've got the same thing with Damien Chazelle. There was like a super low budget first film. There was also Barry Jenkins did a super low budget film before Moonlight. So so and their features. Um sometimes I guess people make those films which put them on the map and allow them to make the next, but everyone sort of forgets about them. And then they can the the debut in inverted commas is like stratospherically instantly successful, but actually behind it there is like other work. Um, so I think it's it's hard now with spiraling costs and um, it, on the one hand, but I guess you could probably also, I'm sure filmmakers who started out and could only shoot on film would say, well now you could shoot it on your phone kind of thing. So I I see that there's two sides to it, but. Um, I think there's definitely an interesting route in doing a micro-budget feature straight out the gate. Uh, but you obviously, it's it's much longer, it's much bigger endeavour. Um, 
you've really got to be sure that you can pull it off so that it stands out. But if you make a good one, your chances are probably greater of standing out compared to shorts where there's thousands of brilliant shorts, but yeah, it's luck. And then I suppose, so finally then, before we move on to the three films, so what would you say was the negative findings of your research? What, what did you find discouraging about, about the relationship between short film success and feature film success in festival terms? There's definitely quite a lot of clear, uh, if, if there's somebody famous in a short or it's directed by somebody famous or the child of somebody famous, like there's definitely an over, those films seem to get a bit more attention, uh, whether they're better or not. I think it is really random. I think what's quite depressing is that actually a lot of successful shorts don't lead to successful features careers. Um, so, so on the one hand, I think that's like encouraging because it's like you don't need to stress about having this insane success with your first short or whatever. But by the same token, you could do two or three brilliant shorts and get a lot of success and not manage to translate that to a features career. Um, I guess also from, from conversations I've had, because this is what you can't see from just researching it, is uh, there is an element of it being a numbers game and I think even some of the most successful shorts, you talk to the producers or the directors and you ask, how many did you apply to? And, you know, it's it's normally one in five, one in 10, one in 15 that you're actually getting into. And at the cost of that, it's quite clear that that's quite prohibitive to a lot of filmmakers. And so your chances of getting into five festivals um, are greatly reduced if you can't afford to apply to tons of them. And I do think there's obviously uh, possibly the reasons why the ones that have more profile anyway get into the festivals easier is because they might know more people there anyway. Um, and I'll get, that's that's not part of my research. That's just the conjecture because I know how the industry works. But cost is so clear. And I've spoken to quite a lot of producers of shorts and just said how many, you know, knowing where they've got into how many did you apply to? Um, and it's a huge number. And there's also there's also the politics of the small p, isn't there? Because you could get accepted at one and that might not be the highest up the chain that you want to be in. And do you say yeah or do you wait and see if you don't, you know? And that's a, you know, I, don't, I don't know what the gamble, I've never been in that position, but I, I know that, that could be a gamble, couldn't it? For a filmmaker that they might have a, a B-list festival that wants to premiere their show and then they're going, no, but we're waiting on Tribeca or waiting on Cannes or whatever. I would say I would say the one good thing about shorts and the premiere thing is that most programmers are, are not too fussed. I mean, maybe they just say that, but um, you know, even Sundance and stuff don't require a world premiere or even a North American premiere. And it's becoming much I don't think it's so important. Like it's 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 a cool thing to say. Obviously, if your timings line up and you can do your world premiere at Tribeca, then fantastic. But it's not this like there is insane importance attached to where those premiers are in in Featureland, and you know people really will not program you if you if you can't give them the premiere they need. So there it is, like super super. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know a lot of people ask me what inspires your music. And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. 
From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Essential. But in short, most programmers, at least, you know, on the face of it, say that that's not going to be the deciding factor. Uh, they're not so precious about it. And I don't think, you know, me as a producer, I, I don't really care where someone's short's premiered. It's more interesting to see where it's gone. But even then, I you know, it's more whether I like it. But uh, in terms of premiere status, I don't think people should agonise too much about holding out for better ones. If you've got one on the table, take it. And, and often, actually, you'll then get more interest because they've seen it's gone to other places. No, and that's encouraging to hear. I think that's a bit of an urban myth, maybe what I've, I've unpacked there, that, that maybe is worth people hearing, to be honest with you. Mm. Thank you for sharing that about your uh, your journey and delve into the relationship between short films and uh, and whether that led to any long form directing success. Uh, now we're going to talk about three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Great. I guess one last thing before we get into it, I should just ask: Is there anything else that you wanted to say that 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 of your findings that you've not been able to cover so far? The encouraging thing is that often, you, if you look back, you can see that it does just take a long time um, and it's a slow process. I mean, I was looking back at, say, Biffa, um, Biffa nominated shorts and, you know, you've got, just thinking about films about this year, 2012, Mahalia Bellows' um, short volume was there. She's just directed her debut film, The End We Stop, Body Coma. Um, Kid Way Tavares was the following year with Jonah. He's just done The Kitchen. Um, you know, it's Nick Rowland the year after that with Slap. So you can sort of see the journey of directors where they have had the success, and but also see that it does take time and really nothing, nothing is overnight. And there are, there are the odd stories where it feels like it's all happened very quickly. Um, but I think those people are also building on other work in the industry or, or relationships yeah. or careers. Also, it's just a fluke. Yeah, um, they do exist. They do exist, but um, there's also often other factors. And then I think, again, like it is, I think it's sort of, it must be a persistence thing. Um, That's the and, message I'm getting from what you said, from what you've said is that, Actually, there's there's no special source here. There is just there's good filmmaking, and it either get noticed by festivals, noticed by producers that you contact, and and that magic will will develop into career if you keep if you persist at doing it because that will keep that will repeatedly come across, won't it? But it doesn't guarantee anything. Is the no, and and something that um that is heartening and applies to features too, but you can learn it in shorts is that often. If you look at uh, successful shorts, like they might actually have only gone to like three festivals, but it just so happens that one of them is quite a big one. And that sort of stamp of approval helps usher the filmmaker's career along. And I think it's the same in the feature space or in development space or like what it really means is it just takes one person to like it and champion it. Um and that actually doesn't have to be like a, a major festival 
you know, like I've said, there's been lots of, I've seen so many examples of uh, filmmakers who've made their debuts and their shorts have not, like even in the last two years, their shorts haven't gone to the major international A-list festivals at all. But it's about, it's about somebody who can help get your work made, noticing that work, loving it and championing it. And it doesn't, that doesn't have to be can <laughs> or sometimes. Um, but if it is Cannes, that's that's going to be a certain type of film. I mean, if you're if you're a budding horror filmmaker trying to get into Cannes, you might as well throw your your MP full of that yeah, window yeah. than than spend yeah. money trying to get on there. You know, it's like that kind of that kind of being more pragmatic. I had Wendy Mitchell was on a couple of years ago to, on on the podcast talking about just festival strategies, full stop. And a lot of it is about marrying expectations next to what you want to do. You know, because we, we mm-hmm. Cannes very prestigious as Venice is, but they show a type of film. It's it's so to not get in it with your slapstick comedy is not <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's not a reflection of your slapstick comedy. No, and I mean there, there is there there is quite a, there's lots of examples of uh, festivals following a, a a filmmaker's career in terms of the programming, the shorts, and then the features. Mm. Saw that, saw quite a lot of examples of that. But then there's also times, and you know, anecdotally, I know from filmmaker friends where they have had shorts programmed at those big a-list festivals and then they haven't taken the feature so i so that was surprising to me because i did sort of assume that for a lot of those projects it was a foregone conclusion that because they like the narrative of we found your shorts and now we're going to program your feature but actually it doesn't always happen oh that's a bit and, <laughs> yeah I yeah thought, i just thought that was a give it go with the the the, the joy of getting in anything right they're our friend now <laughs> yeah and you know, I think vast majority, like there is a lot of uh, continuity between shorts that go to those big ones and then the features, and they and I do think festivals enjoy the narrative of that, you know, understandably. But there's also examples that doesn't happen, and and then others where maybe the timing wasn't right, I guess, and and they've just had a bit different different offer, and it's come at the right time. So, um, but yeah, there's it's also not a given, which kind of surprised me because I did think it would be. And having spoken to some programmers at some of those top festivals, it sounds like uh, they actively don't want it to be a given in a lot of a lot of them. They want to come alone. Yeah. Let us move forward then to three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. And what I'm going to do is you give me a list of three films, and then I'm going to set a timer for five minutes. And when I mention the film. You can wax lyrical as to what the impact is, where you saw it, who you saw it with, you know, what what the experience was, how it became something that had impact on you. And we'll see where that goes. Does that sound okay to you? Yeah. Perfect. Well, look, I'll start with the first film you give me. It's Festa. Do you want to talk us through what, how that has an impact on you or why that has an impact on you? So controversially, I saw the play version of the film first. Okay. Uh, when I was at university and I was doing some photography for it, of like taking pictures of this play. And I was getting snippets of it in the rehearsal. And I was like, what is this? This is, this is so amazing. Um, watched, watched the play and just fell in love with the story and then went and got the DVD retro um, and watched it alone in my room. And I don't know. I just, I was, I just suddenly became obsessed actually with that whole wave of Danish filmmaking and how 
they decided to try and tell these stories with as little interference and as little in terms of uh you know lighting budget like as possible and try and just make these films with these restrictions and i think when i look back at it it's something that's actually really fed into how i started my career and how i started making films because it was making a film a feature with with nothing mm. and doing it really lo-fi um and still trying to make the best thing you could make um but at the same time, I think creatively, I've found that film has stayed with me so much. And I reference it a lot just because it's all of the things that I love, which is, you know, dark, uncomfortable truths. Yeah. Sitting under the surface, family dynamics, which are painful, big secrets threatening to come out, viciously dark humor mixed with a, a tinge of horror. Mm. I guess it was my first sort of real. Uh, experience when I was on the cusp of adulthood of of kind of social horror genre and it feeds a lot of what I love and what I like to make and um, it was interesting the other day I went to a talk with Jesse Armstrong and he was talking about Succession and how he pitched it as Feston meets Dallas (laughs) and what a great what a uh, great pitch (laughs) yeah Um, and I and I was like yeah this you know this is why Succession is my favorite TV show. There's there's this sort of continuity uh, thread of um, certain type of story and and dynamic that I find endlessly fascinating. And Feston was the first first moment I think that I like saw that, recognized it, and understood it, and decided that it was a kind of a, a genre of its own that I loved. Um, yeah, a friend of mine calls it emotional horror. Yes, yeah. Because it's exactly that. The gasp, isn't it? The gasp of what the hell have they just revealed? Because it's never mm. it's never visceral or gory or violent. It's it's almost emotional violence in a way, the way that Feston works. Yeah. Because the person who gets to do it has been saving this up. <laughs> they yeah, don't just yeah, walk yeah. in and go, hey, you thing I'm gonna accuse you of. Yeah. And and also just I think in the the beauty of that film um, is in so many tiny moments of, you know, all of the different dynamics between the group, whether it's racial or gendered or, you know, class hierarchies. It's it's the way that that is written in in tiny little, often unspoken moments mm. um, or sometimes really, you know, cutting dialogue. But it's, I just, I just think it's a genius film and it's, one of the first that made me want to make films um and very embarrassingly uh when when i just left university and i got i uh had been involved in a film festival and i'd got to know another amazing danish uh director she put me in touch with thomas vinterberg and uh yeah um and I was I was desperately convinced that I wanted to do a remake of it, which now I think maybe is um, unnecessary, having seen a lot of uh, Hollywood remakes of European cinema. But uh, yeah, I was so obsessed with with it and wanting more people to see it. Even though now I work, obviously everyone's seen it, but 
what do you remember being the big differences between? I mean, it's weird. It's interesting to see it stage play first, then the film, because obviously you've got much of what to expect. You already know, but what would what elevated it in terms of, or not in that case? Maybe what elevated it for you from the stage to the film? What did it do so differently, or what does film do differently that, that stage doesn't? I mean, I think I always like. I'm a much bigger fan of of film than I am theatre. That's just a, a natural preference. And mm. obviously, the stage version is in English. Um, and I don't know. I don't think you've got the sort of creeping dread. And I guess also like the the very interesting like handheld way that it was shot and the um, oh, time's up. Time's up. Time's up. Well, look, let us get into your second choice, which is The Parent Trap. Do you want to talk us through which, which version it is first and, uh, and, 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 and why? Yes, slight change in tone. Um, <laughs> it's the Nancy Mayer's version with Lindsay Lohan. Okay. Um, so I first saw this, I don't know how old I was. I must have been like younger than 10. Mm-hmm. And it was at my family friend's my my parents' friends' house, and they had kids who were like a bit older than us. And we'd go around there, and they'd put on something for us to watch. And it was the Parent Trap, and it became this thing that every time we went around there, that's what we would watch. And I just completely fell in love with it. And it became the film that over the years I would just always, always revisit. And even now I revisit, and my daughter watches it, and you know, plays a plays along with it, and likes to recreate scenes. And she's only like three and a half. <laughs> she was going on guard or like trying to, you know, was it singing bad to the bone? Um, and I think it's for me, it's kind of like if Feston's one side of my film personality, Parent Trap is the other, in that I either want something that's really going to unsettle me and like explore the darkness lurking beneath, or I want something that is so, is like a warm bath and that is, you know, recitable and, uh, that you can just go back to again and again and again. And I think it sort of epitomizes that. And, you know, it's a mixture of actually being quite um, romantic, but also like a bit of a, I mean, obviously they're sisters, but like a buddy film and a comedy and something that anyone of any age can watch and enjoy. Um, And actually the more I watch it, the more I appreciate the craft and the, um, just that actually it's like just a fantastic film and I and I wish we made more films like that now um and I mean I know literally the words to every scene I know really I'm upset any sort of you know there's occasionally like a a TikTok I saw quite a lot of um Halloween costumes uh on TikTok this year from Parent Trap there's loads of merch on Etsy there's like tweets that will go viral every now and then uh but yeah I just I, I it's a, one of those films that I'm so emotionally attached to I guess a combination of it being a film that I loved when I was younger but also one that stood the test of time and it's just so feel good and fun and still yeah incredibly well made and the jokes still land I was going to say, so what are, what are some of the craft things that you appreciate now that obviously you wouldn't have done as a kid? That you, you know, with these repeat watches and you obviously now as a producer, what are you seeing in the craft of the film that you think is, you know, to be applauded? I mean, like, it's beautifully shot. Um, it's the, like, the performances are amazing. Um, and 
there's like real chemistry between you know, their mum and dad. Um, the the scenes where they're where she's really leaning into like the physical comedy when they're uh, they've like put loads of tricks and you know, they've pranked the the hut and the way that, that plays out. The amazing performances that she's managed to get from kids, and I still think this like Lindsay Lohan to have done both those roles at that age is a phenomenal feat that's underappreciated. Um, and the the soundtrack is incredible. What what what's what's a favourite off the soundtrack then? Oh my god! Literally all of them. I mean, Bad to the Bone, classic. It's L O V E. You know the L is for the way you look at me. God, there's so many and like so many. I'm not as familiar with this film as you are. Remember? No, clearly. But I don't know if anyone is. Um, it's also like a lot of people like the there's an aspirational element to it, like a, a like a, a fantasy element to it. Yeah, you know, the, down from the idea that you just like meet your long lost sister twin you never knew about, but also just you know that Elizabeth James, this wedding dress designer, and she takes her kid on this fancy tour around London and meets the model, and you know, like the vineyard. And the and I, I like the sort of clashing cultures element of it too, and just that every character feels so fully formed and has their own little subplot. Um, yeah, I just think it's an iconic film, and there's not a single moment in it that doesn't work, which is rare. So, so, um, so what would be what's a what's a what's a favourite quote in your household then that gets that's get used as a result of you watching this film a lot? Oh God, a favourite quote. Um, I mean, there's obviously the one like, I'm, I'm smart and you're not, I have class and you don't like the, you know, where the, 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 and there's, I, th- I think I actually do have a tote bag with one of the quotes, which is, um, being young and beautiful, isn't it a crime level? <laughs> Time's up. Do you want to finish that thought? No, just that like, the, there's, there's a lot of quotes that are obviously just silly and fun, but, uh. Almost every scene, I think, if you wanted to, you could probably pull out a brilliant quote. Right then, for your final choice, again, we're shifting tonally, um, is uh, Tree of Life. And this is definitely the first time this one's been discussed. Okay, so interestingly, you say about the not revisiting. So this is a film that I've only watched once and I haven't revisited because I am, I don't know, nervous to go back to it. Mm. Um, I watched it, I think I just maybe like recently had my... One of my kids, I can't, well, my, must my eldest. Um, and I just put it on because it was it had been on my list of something to watch. Yeah. And I watched it on my own quite late at night. And I can only describe it as being like, you know, when you watch a film and it sort of feels like a meditative, transporting experience, mm-hmm. um, which I guess is the point of the film. And I know it's quite a divisive film which I think I always admire. And it just like wrecked me. And like, I was like sobbing and um, it was one of those ones that's just stayed with me in a way that doesn't really make that much sense. It's not like there was anything in the story that felt especially, you know, relatable to me, but I just, it felt like the universality of human experience and the way that the film just tried to encompass it in this really beautiful uh, dreamlike music heavy surreal abstract way really stuck with me and I think about the imagery in the film a lot 
even years later. I think about the music. If I hear some of the music on like Classic FM or something, I'm like immediately transported back to it. Um, and I think it, for me, it's kind of indicative of what cinema can do that's so special, which is just really hit you on a sort of visceral, emotional level mm. and make you feel something, even if you don't quite understand what it is you're feeling. Um, you know, and I think a lot of films I love are sort of in this space that are maybe a little bit less abstract, but, you know, like, I, I in terms of, like, films that move me, and I think about a lot, I there's a few that I think are sort of maybe siblings to this in the, like, Melancholia or Manchester mm. by the Sea arrival space where they're sort of quite meditative and just just deeply emotional and upsetting but also beautiful and I think that's what it was for me and I and it would ordinarily I think before I saw it if I'd read reviews and stuff I might have thought I would not have liked that film at all and actually it's one that uh yeah I just think about a lot and I think you can't really control which of these films stay with you and um pop into your head when you least expect it or when you're writing or when you're whatever. Um, but that is one of them. And, and it sounds, because one thing I always think about is that um, the way we respond like you're describing is proves how subjective it can be. Because you could have been sat next to your best friend and they you were both were at the cinema and one's scratching their head going, why did we watch that? And then the other one's, then you're going, that's the most mesmeric experience of my life. I I'm not sure how to explain it just yet, you know? Um, well, I mean, I, apparently I've, I've read reviews since and it does seem to be one of those films where people either give it five stars or one star. Mm. And I think at, at Cannes, it was like, I mean, it did, I think it did win the Palme d'Or, but it was like booing and cheering at the same time. I, it's, I think it's definitely one of those films that, yeah, it's a bit marmite and it's sort of a mood film. But I'm also a sucker for mood films. And I think... I think did you see it on the big screen then when you saw it for this first time? No, I saw it in my house. Oh, wow. So this had this impact on you at home. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine what it would have been like in the cinema. Yeah. You know, I've, I've had those experiences in the cinema with like, you know, Under the Skin or um, I'm trying to think of other ones where I've sort of felt like the, the kind of mood, mood, I don't know if you could call Under the Skin a mood piece, but do you know what I mean? Where it's just like there's it, this it, prevailing. I, I would call it that. Yeah. It has a big crescendo, but it's definitely a mood piece. Yeah, it's it's that, and I, you know, you, you sometimes feel that even more in the cinema with other people. But do, do you think it's do you think it's maybe do you think it's maybe because of what Terence Malick is trying to do? And I'm not saying I understand what he's trying to do, but certainly what he's not trying to do is just tell us straight, you know, what we recognise as being beginning, middle, and end, first act, second act, third act. Mm -hmm. He's not giving us those signifiers to just basically pick up on, so we know where we're going. And I think that's and if you can go with that, that's where the mesmeric comes from. No, I think it's also like it's quite a sincere, earnest film. Which oh, time's up. <laughs> Finish the thought. Finish the thought, though, Helen. But, well, that normally, you know, I would say as a rule, I'm quite cynical, and I would go for things that err er on the side of being cynical about human nature and all there is to it. But that film is not that, and I think there's something in the kind of sincerity of it that's really moving. Mm. And actually, I think is probably important as creatives to not lose all the time because it's okay to also be sincere and uh, think about the kind of overwhelming nature of what it is to be alive. Absolutely. No, I mean, I, 
it's a question I often, when I get to interview distributors or sales agents, it's a question I get to ask them all the time. It's like, how do you ever get to enjoy films again on a level that you were a film fan when you're just looking at whether this can, does this do X, Y, or Z in the marketplace? Where does it fit? It's not for me. Switch off. I've not got time. You know, it's like, and it's great. Maybe it's great. That's just a good sign then, I suppose, that you can, a film can catch you out like that. I mean, for it's interesting you said about the five and the one star thing. I was talking recently about um, my own, my own observation. It was like again, anecdotal. It's not proper research, but two films I love that I know people, a lot of people hate are The Counselor by Ridley Scott and Nicholas Wan and Refn's Only God Forgives. Now, if you go and look at their review pattern on Amazon, not that that's the the root of any results of anything, but <laughs> they both are twenty five percent five star and 40 percent one star reviews mm. and to me that means they've got it's got the film gets a reaction from from a kind of a, i guess i'm saying amazon's not a film centered like I, imdb is or rotten tomatoes so that's like he just bought the film and gone oh my god what's this or jesus this is the work of genius you know and i think that's but that becomes a, I, like i say that's where it's subjective thing because you i could tell you that the counselor is the best, best film ever and you're going to go no it's not not in a million years. <laughs> and that what doesn't matter because that's just my subjective response to it, like your subjective response to Tree of Life. No, it's fantastic. I think yeah. it's fascinating. And it's interesting because you've, you've kind of given us three different pictures of how you see films in a way with the three choices. <laughs> like, it's kind of a good, it's a good spread. You've got the kind of, oh my God, this is, this is, this is truly amazing. Then there's the, the child that can't stop watching something. And now there's something that almost like, it's almost like you, you like, you're liking to admit that it, it just caught you out and it's got you. Yeah. 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 And I think that's sometimes the best experience to be just knocked sideways by something. Absolutely. It doesn't happen often enough. So when it happens, embrace it. Well, look, Helen, uh, we have come to the end of your three films that have impacted everything in your life. Thank you for sharing your words and thoughts on your research you've done into a relationship, relationship or not between short film festival success and feature film success with directors. Um, before we go, is there anything that you can share about what's going on next for you as a producer? Is there any, any news that you that you that you're happy to share? Or Horde will be coming out spring next year. Um and Clock and Luda, uh, you can now watch um uh, online. Um and then more stuff shooting, which hopefully we can talk about soon. another season of the Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find the Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Palmetto Porch.